Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4 for this morning. If you uh, are using one of the Bibles on the back of the pew or the chair in front of you, you'll find it on page 213. And we would love it if you would take that Bible with you today as our gift to you. We're covering a lot of ground this morning, guys. We're going to cover 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 1 all the way through the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 7. And I cannot wait to get into it with you. But... Before I do, earlier this year, I was, uh, I was reading a new biography of pastor and author Tim Keller, a man who recently died of cancer. Now, this book came out just before he died. It was a, a book that focused on his major influences, you know, the, 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 the books and the people who made him into, the per, into a person who's influenced so many others, including yours truly. Uh, one of the things I was struck by early on in the book was a, one of the first major influences on his life, a, an InterVarsity staffer named Barbara Boyd. Uh, Keller became a Christian as a college student, and it was in the middle of the, the counterculture revolution of the 60s and 70s, you know, back when college students were first learning the independence they could have if they wanted it and flexing those independent muscles and saying no to all the things they'd inherited from all the people who came before them and yes to whatever seemed right to them at the time. Keller was very much a part of this ethos, and Barbara Boyd, this InterVarsity staff trainer, was known in that time for a talk that she would often give on the lordship of Jesus. Speaking to college students caught up in the spirit of the 60s and 70s about it, what it means to have a Jesus who you don't get to pick and choose from, that you have to take whole hog as he is because he's Lord. At the heart of this talk, Keller often told the story of, of the image she would use to get her point across. I want to share it with you. Here's the challenge she would often give in this talk, and Keller would use it over and over again throughout his ministry. She said, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, do you realize the distance from the earth to the next nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high? Just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck of the universe. And the Bible says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus Christ holds the universe together by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with his pinky. And here was her line. Here was the blow that she would deliver. Do you ask somebody like that into your life to be your assistant? That's no knock on assistants. I've been an assistant. I have benefited from several assistants. Some of you in this room right now work as assistants. There is great value. Great dignity in being a good assistant. But we know what an assistant is. An assistant is someone who helps someone else accomplish their goals. An assistant is, is one who, who puts their skill and their effort towards your agenda if you're the one who's got the assistant. They extend your reach in a direction you already know you want to go. If Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power, do you think he's interested in being your assistant do you relate to God as your assistant 
How could you recognize it if you were doing that? And what should you do about it if you are? Our story this morning helps answer these crucial questions. Israel has to learn a painful lesson. Most of their lessons, they tended to learn the hard way. It's a lesson about the God who has made them his people and how he's not like the gods of their neighbors around them. He is a God too big for them to control. But he's not like the gods of their neighbors. He's big enough to help them when they can't escape on their own. I want to begin by reading the first scene in our story for this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 and go to verse, um, I'm going to read at first through verse 11. This is God's word. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Two points for us this morning as we walk through these wonderful chapters. Point number one, the God of Israel is too big to control. Point number two, the God of Israel is big enough to help. Point one this morning, the God of Israel is too big to control. That is the one straightforward, simple point that gets made three separate times in three separate ways from chapter four, verse one to the end of chapter six. Let me show you the first way 
that this point gets driven home is in this story of Israel's terrible loss. The scene that uh, I just read for you opens with a bang. Immediately we're dropped right into a battlefield. We don't know where this battle has come from or what, 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 what's brought them to this place. As the line spread out in chapter 2 between Israel and their arch enemies, the Philistines. We do know, though, that the Philistines were troublemakers. They were Israel's thorn in their side. Uh, better pictures probably they were, they were the boot on Israel's neck from the first... Uh, second half of the book of Judges all the way through most of 1 Samuel. The Philistines were Israel's arch enemies and they were powerful, too powerful for Israel. The battle lines are drawn up, verse 2, and then we're simply told, just like that, that the Philistines won, that they killed 4,000 Israelites in the process. We aren't told how the battle went, who the main heroes were, what the ups and downs of that story were, because that isn't the point. This defeat that Israel suffers is just the backdrop for the action we're meant to care about, for the action that now we zoom in on, this conversation among the elders of Israel about what to do next. Back to verse 3 with me. The elders say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They're right to ask that question. They know that the Lord is sovereign over every battle. It wasn't the strength of the Philistines, the strength of their chariots and horses, the strength of their weaponry that won the battle. It was the Lord who gave that victory to them and not to Israel. They're right to ask why. Why has the Lord defeated us in battle this day? So far, so good. The next right question to ask would have been, What should we do to learn from God why he has done this thing to us? Who can tell us what God wants us to learn from what's just happened? Who will help us in what we face next? They had Samuel there. He spoke words from the Lord we just saw last week that none of his words fell to the ground. The Lord upheld all of them. They could have asked him. They didn't. Instead of asking, they decide to act. Instead of praying for wisdom, they come up with a plan of their own. I wonder when something bad happens in your life, what is your typical response? Do you tend to pray? Or is your knee-jerk reaction to plan? Do you look to the Lord or do you look for solutions that you can control? The Israelites, they thought they could do both. They thought they could both rely on the Lord and control the outcome. That's where the Ark of the Covenant comes into the story. Back to verse 3. They've asked why the Lord has defeated us today, but they don't stop to wait for an answer. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. That's the solution that we need. Why? That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Maybe you're asking, just quick aside here, what is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord? Never heard of that before. Why do they think it could be helpful to them? What is it even? If you're wondering about that, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was a, a box, about yay big, covered in gold, 
containing the tablets that, that, that recorded the covenant between God and his people made out in the wilderness, written in stone and included in this ark. It was a symbol to, to Israel of God's presence with them in Egypt and then in the wilderness and a reminder that he had made promises to them that he intended to keep. It included pieces of the manna that he'd fed them with from on high as a reminder that when this God promises to take care of you, this God takes care of you. He can provide food from you from the sky. In other words, this was a, a God-designed gift to them, a symbol of his goodness to them in the past and his commitment to them for their future. That's what the ark was. And it lived in the most holy place in the tabernacle where Israel would go to meet with God and to make their sacrifices to him year after year. There's nothing wrong with the Ark of the Covenant. It was a good gift designed by God for his people and given to them because they needed this reminder that he was with them and for them. Nothing wrong with the Ark. But look at how they'd come to view it by now. Let's bring the Ark, they say, verse 3, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. You see what they did there? This ark that symbolizes God's presence became the presence they depended on. This ark that was supposed to remind them of God's power and promise, it became the power that they trusted to set them free from their enemies. And this ark was so alluring, so tempting for them to grab hold of because they could literally grab hold of it. They could literally take it with them to the site of their need. They could watch it come into their camp. And they thought, we can bank on it to do our bidding in our battle against this enemy. Verse 4 is, I think, ironic in its description of this situation. The people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. The Lord who is enthroned on the cherubim. They would put the Lord of hosts in their pocket like a rabbit's foot. This God who's enthroned on the cherubim, they would make their own assistant. They have to learn a very difficult but crucial lesson about their God. Verse 5 says, as soon as the ark got to the camp, the army gave up a mighty shout. It shook the earth. It was so mighty. They saw what they knew would deliver them, and they felt better. But it has the opposite effect on the Philistines. They hear the mighty shout right, rise up from the Israelites, and they think, what's going on here? Guys, we're in a corner. And, and, and back into that corner, they come out swinging. They fight harder than ever. Play the man, be men and fight, they say. And the plan that Israel hatched backfires. The Philistines now, before they had, they had killed 4,000 soldiers, this is a total slaughter of 30,000 soldiers from Israel. And not only does Israel lose the soldiers, Israel loses Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests who took the ark into battle. Israel loses the ark. And just after that, Israel even loses Eli, their priest and judge. Because when the news of the defeat reaches Shiloh, and Eli hears of it. Verse 18 of chapter 4 says that he falls over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. What was the lesson for Israel in this terrible loss? Israel had to learn that you can come to the right God 
in the wrong way. They had to learn you can't domesticate the Lord of hosts. This Lord is sovereign. He is free. His power is his power. It stays his. And he decides when and where to use it. And no one can harness him for their own agenda. This God of Israel is too big to control. Israel had to learn that lesson through their loss. But the Philistines needed to learn it too. And the second way these stories drive home this same exact point is through Dagon's defeat. Look with me at chapter 5. As soon as the battle is over, the Philistines capture the Ark of God. And verse 1 says they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. It's one of their main cities. And then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was the main god of the Philistines, one of many. They were pagans, so they had lots of gods that they associated with lots of different things you might want to get out of this world. You pay them the right price, you get from them the right help at the right time. And Dagon was the, the arch god for them in this pantheon of gods that they had. So when they went out to battle against Israel, they saw that battle is a battle between Dagon and Israel's God. Clearly, Dagon won. So they grab what they think of as Israel's God and take it back as a trophy right into Dagon's house and set it down right next to Dagon. The symbolism is unmissable. Our God beat your God. Now your God works for us. See, they think there's some power here. He helped Israel. Maybe we could use his power and leverage it, but, but he'll now be up under Dagon. He'll do his bidding. We'll get, we'll get two gods in place of one. But what happens next? Oh, it is just beautiful the way this story is told and is absolutely written to make you laugh. They don't know who they're dealing with. Back to chapter five. When the people of Ashdod rise up early the next morning, Look what they find, verse 3. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. When they wake up in the next morning, it looks like their God is worshiping the God of Israel. He is in the position of a worshiper on his face. But maybe it was just a strong gust of wind. Or maybe a priest accidentally bumped into the statue the night before while tidying up. Maybe it's just a coincidence. So they take Dagon and put him back in his place. That language is loaded. The only way Dagon gets back upright again is if the people who trust him set him back upright again. This is a God who only goes where he's carried. This is a God who will only stand where you set him down. When they rise early the next morning, what do they find? Verse 4. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Only this time, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is a battlefield massacre. Poor Dagon can't stand up for himself. Poor Dagon now can't see or even think for himself. He's got no head. And he certainly can't act to save himself, much less his people. He's got no hands. 
And the carnage isn't finished yet. What happens to Dagon is just a preview of what's to come for the Philistines. Dagon had lost his hands, but look what the hand of the Lord is doing. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So what do they do? Verse 8. They sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What do we do with the ark? And they answered, Let's take it over to Gath. (laughs) Let's let them have it for a while. They brought the ark of God of Israel there. Guess what happened in Gath? Verse 9. After they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they send the ark of God to Ekron. They're playing hot potato with this ark. Not it, not it, not it. Maybe this contagion, this bubonic plague type outbreak was just in, 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 in the first city in Ashdod. Let's, let's eliminate that possibility. We'll take the ark to Gath. But the the plague goes with the ark. Gath has it just as bad as Ashdod did. Same story in Ekron, same story wherever they plan to take it. See, you know what what the author is doing here? And he's playing with irony. The reason the Philistines brought that ark back was to take it on a tour of all their main cities. To create a victory parade where they would take their captives, any kings or main leaders they captured, and especially the idols of the the gods of the peoples they had conquered. And they would walk through their cities showing them, look what Dagon did. But this God goes on his own tour and it's his victory that he celebrates, not theirs. He conquers everywhere he goes. Because this God, the God of Israel, is too big to control. He answers to no one. He won't be domesticated. And the final scene in this story of the ark reinforces that same point one more time. We saw it in Israel's loss. We've seen it in Dagon's defeat. Now look at how that same point gets driven home with the Lord's return. The Lord's return. This is the story of chapter 6. The Philistines get all their brightest minds and most religious leaders into a room to figure out how to get this ark out of town. And the solution they come up with is actually really clever. Let me read it for you. Pick up in verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What do we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us. What shall we send it to? With what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty. But by all means, return him with a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed, and it'll be known to you why this hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he'll lighten his hand from off of you, And your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side and the figures of gold. 
which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. See, they're, not, they're still not convinced. They still haven't realized who they're dealing with. So they come up with a solution that actually checks all the boxes. On the one hand, they come up with a guilt offering. If this God is real, if he's the one who's been afflicting us, he'll need to be appeased. So come up with something that's gold, that makes it precious, it honors the offense and the God who was offended. Come up with, a, with gold tumors and mice, that represents the affliction, the plague and how it's carried. Come up with five each, that'll represent all the lords and therefore all the people. We all are sorry for what we did. But perhaps the best, most clever part of their solution is how they plan to get this thing back to Israel. The, this, this notion of putting the, the ark on a fresh cart with milk cows who have never pulled one before, who are to be separated from their calves, all of that is loaded language. What the, what the priests are coming up with is a test to see if it really was God who was at work all along. Because cows that, cows that have never pulled a cart before aren't going to pull a cart anywhere without someone to drive them. Cows that are experienced at pulling carts are not going to pull one to Beth Shemesh rather than wherever else might seem best to them, wherever they are from, roads they know. And no cow that has a calf at home is going to voluntarily walk anywhere but right back to that calf to give it the milk that that cow knows it needs. Basically, they're stacking the deck. There is no way this ark gets home unless this God has legs of his own, unless this God doesn't have to be set in his place, unless this God is a self-starter who goes wherever he wants to go, unless this God is the kind of God who can go on our victory tour to defeat us. Let's see who he is. So they set the ark up on the cart, they turn it loose, and there it goes, right back home. Look at verse 11. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went, crying over the calves they were leaving behind. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Friends, can you see what these stories are trying to show us? Can you see the one central message tying all three of them together? We have these stories as a gift to us to teach us the lesson Israel and the Philistines had to learn the hard way. The God of Israel is too big to control. But these stories are not meant to scare us away from him. They're not meant to inspire in us the same kind of fear the Philistines had. Get him out of here. Keep your distance. Stay back. They're meant to drive us to a different sort of question. They're meant to make us ask, how should we approach a God like this? What is the right way to come to a God this big, too big to control? 
And chapter 7 is meant to answer that question. If chapters 4 to 6 show us what not to do, the wrong ways to relate to God, chapter 7 shows us the right way. If chapters 4 to 6 show us that the God of Israel is too big to control, don't even think about it. Chapter 7 shows us the glorious, the the, the life-giving, the hope-stirring flip side of that truth. The God of Israel, he is big enough to help. You can come to him with what you need. He loves that. He's waiting for that. Turn with me to the beginning of chapter 7 now. At the opening of this chapter, we're told that they set up the ark with a newly consecrated caretaker in a village called Kiriath-Jerim. But then, verse 2, we're told, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The ark is back, but their situation hasn't changed. They're still under the thumb of the Philistines, And worst of all, they know they have alienated their God who could help them. In a way, they are now as fearful of that ark as the Philistines are. And they had some reason to be. What should they do next? By God's grace, Samuel has been raised up for exactly this moment. Look at verse 3. When the house of Israel or the people of Israel are lamenting after the Lord, when their their hearts are broken over their own sin enough to draw them back in, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Samuel's first words to Israel after this long time of lament are an invitation to come back, to repent of their idolatry and to trust the Lord with all their heart. The people do exactly as he tells them to do. They repent They clear out all those false gods. They throw away their idols. They admit, verse 6, we have sinned against you. We have sinned against the Lord, they cry out together. And so Samuel prays to God for God's forgiveness. And that is a prayer that God always hears, no matter what. He won't be controlled, but he loves to help. Even sinners who come back to him can depend on his help. And the rest of this story proves that point. Look with me again, back to chapter 7. The Philistines, they haven't gone anywhere during all this time. They may have licked their wounds over the last 20 years, but they still are out for blood. They hear that the people of Israel have gathered to Samuel at Mizpah, verse 7, and the lords of the Philistines decide, now's our time, we'll catch them. They go up against Israel. When the people of Israel hear of it, they're afraid of the Philistines, and with good reason. They've been spanked twice already. They can't match up with this military power. They don't have the weapons. They don't have the people. They don't have a chance. All they've got is a prayer. Now what will they do with their fear of this enemy? 20 years earlier, they were afraid of the Philistines and came up with their plan. Weaponize the Ark of the Covenant. What about this time? What about now after they've turned back to the Lord with all their hearts? 
What do you do with your fear when you've turned to the Lord with all your heart? Verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Does that sound familiar? Back in chapter 4, when they were afraid of the Philistines, do you remember their plan? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, chapter 4, verse 3, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Chapter 7, verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, in place of planning, they opt for prayer. In place of the it, that object they hope to control, they put their trust in him. A God too big to control but big enough to help. And Samuel is all over it. This is the response he's been waiting for. He's a judge now, just like Ehud before him and Gideon and Samson. But he is a judge who doesn't rush into battle with a left-handed dagger thrust. He doesn't call for trumpets and torches like Gideon did. He doesn't grab the jawbone of a donkey and pull down buildings with his bare hands like Samson did. Samuel's weapon of choice is the one his mama taught him. He prays. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, we're told. And the Lord answered him. He leads the people through their fear to the only God who can help. And he uses the tool that God loves to bless. Not an ark that you can control. Prayer is no lever that you pull to get what you want. It isn't a formula that you repeat in the right way for the right number of times to get exactly the right response. Prayer is how a whole heart takes a crushing need to the one who rules, to the one who hears, to the one who loves to deliver those who trust in him. And deliver is exactly what he does. Verse 10, even as Samuel was offering, offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. The Lord beat them with a sound of thunder. What was left for them to do? To pursue the Philistines as they run away and to strike them as far as Bethkar, verse 11. What has Israel learned now? Their God is too big to control, but that means he is big enough to help when no one else can. And that's what these stories are here to show us. To show us how to relate to a God who is this big. And what I want to do with the last few minutes that I've got is walk you back through chapter 7 for the three steps that are absolutely crucial for our life as a Christian. Steps that we take every single day in our lives as a Christian that are modeled for us in chapter seven and that show us what it looks like to relate to a God who is this big. Step number one, 
Repent of our idolatry every day. Repent of our idolatry every day. That was the first thing Samuel told Israel to do. Take inventory. Find every one of the Baals, every one of the Asheroth, and clean them out. This God doesn't want his cut. It isn't just important to him that his statue is bigger than Dagon's. He wants your whole heart, Samuel says. And that means no quarter to other gods we might trust or serve alongside him. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Verse 3. You know, kids, as you grow older, one of the things you're going to learn is how easy it is to treat God like one little part of a much bigger life. Sometimes as you get older, it can almost feel like you're building your life out of Legos, brick by brick. You know, a lot of the Lego building we do in our house, it just comes out of a big, big Rubbermaid thing of, of Legos that used to belong to sets, but now they're, they're just all mixed in together. And we have fun with that. All of those are at our disposal to build whatever it is we want to build. Sometimes building your life can kind of feel like that. Like you're bri- building it as you get older, brick by brick. Maybe you get into sports for a while. You see you've got some skill at that. You grab from that brick pile and add to your life. Maybe you get into clothes, what your style says about you. You grab some bricks from that pile. Maybe you figure out what subjects you like most or or the ones that you feel like you're best at. You like math or drama or literature or science. You grab grab from those piles. You, you, You keep building out the shape of your life that you're hoping others will see and notice. We adults are doing this all the time, too, for the record. But here's the point. Here's what, here's what you got to be careful about. Without even realizing it, we can start to treat God like he's just another brick from another pile. To be added in as one of the many things I look to for my life to be stable, to hold up, to be secure. You know, like the Philistines, they grabbed the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord like one more Lego brick to add to their pile they were building. Plugged it in right next to the Dagon brick. Sometimes we can treat God like he's just one more piece of what we want people to see about us. Or even more, sometimes we can treat God like he's just one more thing that we can be good at by following all his rules by learning all the right answers about them, by doing whatever people at church tell us we're supposed to do. But when we treat God like a brick, that assumes he is small, that he's small enough to fit into my life. And God is not small. God is big. God is is too big to fit into your life. You fit into his world. And everything about who you are has to come from what he's told you about who he made you to be. As adults, our our battle against sin is a battle for daily repentance of our idolatry. And one of the most important breakthrough insights that the Bible gives us into our understanding of why we do what we do is to tell us that we always do what we want most and what we want most is driven by something we worship, trust, or love most. Martin Luther talked about this from the Ten Commandments. Before you can break any of the following commandments, you have to break the first commandment first. You will have no other gods before me. Why would anyone steal? 
unless they thought they needed something God had not given them yet to have the life that they really wanted to have. Unless they first worshiped that life more than they worshiped the God who gives and takes away. Why does anyone ever shade the truth? Unless there's somebody's opinion of them that they want to preserve or protect that matters more to them than God's opinion of them when he told them, don't do that. Don't tell lies. That means one of, our, one of our most important strategies as we fight against sin has got to be Samuel's strategy right here. A, a regular inventory of what gods we need to clear out. That is hard work to do. It is really hard to do on yourself. It's another reason that being part of a local church is so important for our growth as Christians. It's a reason that James says in James 5, confess your sins to one another. You want somebody on the other end of your sense of what's going wrong in your life so that they can help you identify what it is you might be worshiping in place of God that leads to these repeated patterns of sin against him. That's part of our work in each other's lives that we've got to be willing to step into. And it leads to the second step we've got to take every day if we want to relate to a God this big. Not just repent of your idolatry every day, but rely on his grace every day. This story right here is preparing us for the bedrock foundation of our faith, for the beating heart of the gospel. Our God is a big God, chock full of grace that he freely offers to anybody who will rely on him instead of themselves. Among Israel's neighbors, there was no category for a God like that. Everybody just assumes God could be useful, but those gods need help themselves. They've got power we don't have. And one of the ways that you get them on your side is you give them what they don't have. You need their help. They need your food. You need their help. They need more slaves. It's a tit-for-tat business relationship, nothing personal. Why would a God who's too big to control, a God who doesn't need anything, ever have any interest in what's going on with us in our lives? Why would a God like that help folks like us? That's what a pagan would have been asking. And, and it's even worse than that. Why would a God like that help people like us who aren't just in a tough spot because we, we're limited and we need help, but, but are in a mess that we made for ourselves by rejecting him in the first place? What if they got into their mess by ignoring him and his help that he'd offered them before? Why would a God, any God who needs nothing, show grace to people like that? That's what the Philistines realized when they sent the ark back. They're like, get this God out of here. We got to stay off his radar. He's angry and you don't get angry gods unangry. You just got to stay away. Why would a God who's been offended in the way this God has have anything for people like us? who've offended him. But Israel, they come right back to the God that they offended because this God had already told them who he is in Exodus 34. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What God is showing Israel here and hearing them when they come back to him is exactly the same character he's shown to us through the cross. Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it honors this big and graceful God when we acknowledge, I don't deserve his help, but I'm gonna rely on it anyway. We gotta repent of our idolatry and rely on his grace. 
And finally, we've got to remember his goodness every day. In chapter 7, verse 12, after God has delivered Israel, Samuel took a stone, we're told, and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Why does Samuel put up a stone like that? It's to remind Israel that God had helped them this far. So they could look at it and know this big, uncontrollable God is reliable. This God is full of grace and power. He'll help us again. And and why did Samuel give them that reminder? For the same reason that God established the Passover feast in the Exodus. For the same reason that we celebrated communion here this morning. For the same reason that God gave them the Ark of the Covenant. It's just so easy for us to forget what he's given us. It's so easy for us to forget that we have reason to trust him. We tend to forget the past and therefore we tend to fear the future. Israel Israel turned their memory aid, that Ark of the Covenant, into a lever for control. Why? Because they were hurting. They just lost 4,000 men. They wanted to avoid future pain. The reason we want to control things is that we know pain is painful. We'd rather not experience it. We'd rather avoid it at all costs. And we know that the, the future could be full of all sorts of painful realities that we don't want, possibilities we want to avoid. And God hasn't promised us we won't have to go through those things, at least in this life. So how do we now fight against our desire to control things so that we can avoid those painful possibilities we so badly want to avoid? How do we do that? We have to remember who holds our future. We have to remember through our Ebenezer, not a stone like Samuel's, not a symbol like the Ark of the Lord, but the living and breathing and scar-bearing and crucified and resurrected and ever-praying Son of God who was sent here by the grace of the God who holds our future. And what is perhaps the most wonderful chapter in all the Bible, in Romans 8, which we read from earlier today, Paul raises his Ebenezer. If God is for us, he says, who can be against us? And we're thinking, some really powerful people can be against us, Paul. Time and decay and death, they can be against us, Paul. Not to mention joblessness and crazy inflation and unpredictable global conflicts and AI, whatever that means. Lots of things can be against us, Paul. And in the meantime, how do we know God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul's doing there? Raising his Ebenezer. This is the last one you'll need. He didn't spare his son. When will he stop helping you? Will he stop helping you when you're not sure you'll have money to cover all of this year's expenses? Is that when he stops? When you don't know how to help children, your children, with what they're going through, that's when he stops helping you. When you're injured or afflicted with a disability you weren't expecting, then when you're diagnosed with cancer, that's when the help stops. Then when you age 
when you come to die? When will he stop? What will you face that could cause this God to say, this far I have helped you, but no further? There is nothing, neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present, things to come, nothing to separate you from the love of the one who didn't spare his own son. He's the Lord of hosts. He loves you. He's proven it. So what are you afraid of? Let's pray. Father, help us to live in the joyful certainty that you are with us and for us, too big to control, but big enough to help. And we pray that you would give us the help that we can't find anywhere else for your name's sake. Amen.